Hello, this is Terry Norda from the Discovering America podcast. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcatchers at Discovering America and my website at discoveringamerica-history.com, a place where you can learn and experience the voyages and explorations that led to the discovery of America. I just finished up a series on Samuel du Champlain and Henry Hudson. The two men and their crew interacted with many native Indians in Canada and in the northeastern parts of the United States. I was not able to go into a lot of detail concerning these friendly and not-so-friendly exchanges. That is where the Iroquois History and Legends podcast comes in, hosted by Andrew and Caleb Cotter. Their delightful delivery of the Iroquois history fills in chapters of history that you would have otherwise missed. And so, without further ado, I introduce to you, Andrew and Caleb. Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. And welcome to episode 17, Bacon's Rebellion. Sounds tasty. It does sound tasty. But before we get into this episode, we got uh, some listener mail, so why don't we talk about that? Yeah, we had a listener write in, and this guy seems like Caleb, like he's like super uber expert on just about everything, which is good because it helps us point out some things. But he made the distinction talking about the difference between what we claimed was adoption and what he referred to as a requickening, especially when it referred to people being, quote-unquote, adopted into nations as prisoners of war. Yeah, and he brought up the point that looking at it just like a modern term for adoption doesn't really quite do it justice. There was much more, almost like a spiritual aspect of it. Actually, that's what it was, a spiritual aspect. And uh, they believed that when you were adopted, we, we talked about how you would be adopted to replace a lost loved one or something like that. But to them, it actually had a, a spiritual significance, like the spirit of the person that they lost actually went into you. And that's how it kind of helped replace you, because they didn't, they didn't look at you like you were necessarily a replacement, but you were actually the same spirit. Like a vessel to hold their, their spirit. And that's why when they had the requickening ceremonies, if you remember back to one of our first episodes on the Sachem Council, they would do the requickening ceremony and the people on the council would get the name of the person that came before them. It was like they were getting that spirit placed on top of them with the title. Sid Hill is the current Tadadaho of the Onondaga. They believe that the same spirit is passed down through all the generations. So thank you very much for pointing that out. Andrew and I were very good at reading, but something like that isn't something you can truly understand unless it's explained to you by, by somebody that really knows the, the core beliefs and, and what they mean. Yeah, and also they say that that's the reason why Coltier, when he was captured, and we mentioned that he was one of the only people that we can tell so far that became a member of the Sachem Council as a European, they viewed it as... He was the one that killed the chief in battle, and he was adopted or requickened by the family, and therefore he had the spirit placed on him so that um, the other person didn't have the shame of their spirit being lost. Because we mentioned again before, dying was shameful. And so the only way to save that shame 
was for somebody to take on the title in the spirit. So thanks so much. We left off before, Caleb, that in 1666, the French invaded Mohawk territory. And they burned their four main villages, and the Mohawks went to rebuild their villages, and some of them had to go to Canada to be held as hostages, and then Jesuits came down into the Mohawk land to live among them. After this time, the five nations are looking to regroup and continue to expand. The Mohawks had to be taken in by the Oneida and the Onondaga for a short time just to be given enough food to survive for the winter, but now they're back. They've had a couple years to recover, and in 1670, they decide to start pushing south because they've already pushed north. They've pushed west. Now down south is the area that they're looking to go to get to the lucrative hunting grounds. And Caleb, when they get down there, they run into a group of Siouan people. Everybody's heard of the Sioux, right? Yeah, except most people think of them, you know, out in the Dakotas. Mm -hmm. Well, just like the fact that you have Iroquoian people and Algonquin people, you have also Siouan people. And so these are not, per se, the prairie teepee-dwelling people. These are still eastern woodland people, but their language is of a Siouan language. And they had settled in the Virginia Piedmont region, which is pretty much the mountainous area along Virginia, West Virginia today. So they begin by pushing them out. But at the same time, they're trying to go to war against these troublesome Susquehannock, also called the Andaste. And they're not meeting with much success. Every time they invade, it seems like they're pushed back or they're ambushed or things just completely fall apart and they're forced to retreat. The Susquehannock, as we mentioned in the last episode, they had a lot more opportunity to get access to firearms and gunpowder and even cannon in some circumstances. Uh, So the Iroquois are going to find they're going to have a lot more difficulty taking their land than they would the Erie, and some of the Western nations that they had a couple decades earlier. And it's interesting because the Susquehannocks are at this time after these devastating plagues and diseases are looking at maybe a population of around 5,000, which is roughly half the population of the five nations. So you would think it'd be no problem because the Iroquois have conquered the neutrals and the Erie, which are much larger populations than even the Iroquois had themselves. So again, it just shows that the weapons really were helping them keep on a defensive front. Because of these setbacks, the Iroquois turned to an old foe to try and get the upper hand. They know that the French still want to settle Jesuits. And so they go back to the French again and say, all right, we would like to make a deal. We would like to open up more trade with you, and we will invite Jesuits to come to Seneca and Cayuga villages, which up until now had not really been happening. But we'd like some weapons and more material supplies so that we can take on the Susquehannock. The French kind of dragged their feet, but they agreed to this. And so now the Iroquois are thinking, all right, we can try and push back in and get the upper hand. But it doesn't really work out. They think they're all set. In 1672, they decide to launch another raid. They've got a party of combined Seneca-Cayuga forces, like 20 Seneca, 40 Cayuga, and they travel south, heading into Susquehannock territory. But they kind of get separated over the distance. So you've got the small party of Seneca and the larger party of Cayuga there in the front. When the Seneca are walking down, they get ambushed by about 60 young Susquehannocks. And when we say young, we mean young. 
Yeah, these these warriors were maybe between the ages of 14 and 16. They actually were known as the soft metals or burned knives because it was it was a saying that they had for like a rookie, somebody that had never taken a scalp. Their knives were soft because they'd never cut the skull of uh, somebody and taken their scalp before. But even though they were young, uh, they were ambitious and they were ruthless. Yep. And so they grab one Seneca commander and kill him and capture another. And all the Seneca there freak out and flee. And after this, the Cayuga party shows up. And so just like in any battle, that's what you want to have happen is divide the the two parties so that you can destroy one and then turn and, and attack the other. And so the second party of Cayuga come by and they do the same thing to them. And so the Seneca and Cayuga people limp home, all bandaged up and wounded. And we've got some letters written by the Jesuits back in these villages. And the Jesuits, I'm sure, are saying to themselves, oh, that's too bad. But meanwhile, they're writing back home. And this is what one of the priests said. May God preserve the Andaste and prosper their arms, that the Iroquois may be humbled and that we and our missions left in peace. Now... Should we remind people, Andaste is another name for Susquehannock. Yep, that was the, what the Huron called them, and therefore that was what the French called them. So the the Jesuits, even though they're there working amongst the Iroquois, they're actually kind of encouraged that they were defeated, because in their head, they're dealing with these people, and we can see from their writings, they think that the Iroquois are very arrogant. Now, let's turn our attention further south, Caleb, because we're going to see a domino effect take place here that gets really complicated, but it ends up working vastly in the Iroquois' favor. And so for that, we have to go back down to Maryland. In the late 1670s, Maryland originally had been allied with the Susquehannock, but suddenly they shifted and broke off their treaty with the Susquehannock. And the reasons are incredibly complicated, and it kind of has to do with the dog people. You mean the name of this nation of Indians is the dog people? Um, yeah, in the records, that's how it's... It's D-O-E-G, but pronounced dog, named after Dog Island. The dog people. Uh, they were an Algonquin tribe that lived around modern-day Quantico, Virginia. The colonists had kind of been encroaching on their land, and a series of unfortunate events kind of sets up a pretty big war, rebellion, civil war kind of deal. And that leads us into what many know as Bacon's Rebellion. Sounds sizzling. It's a sizzling rebellion. Now, Bacon's Rebellion is a relatively small rebellion as far as population, and at the time... You know, it didn't really affect too much, but you're going to see that this causes a huge chain reaction that shaped the Iroquois growing into power. And also, future things hundreds of years down the road, are going to, you're going to see that they started here back in this rebellion. Everything from slavery to Iroquois dominance to Britons interfering with the colonies is going to start right here at this event. Now, at the time in Virginia, it was run by Governor Sir William Berkeley. And he was kind of a, a hero at the time. He had served in the English Civil Wars, and he was kind of a favorite of the king. And so he was given this governorship. There's another character, Nathaniel Bacon, Jr. What a lot of people don't realize is Nathaniel Bacon was actually a cousin of 
Governor Sir William. He was married to Governor Sir William's cousin. This sounds like trouble. Bacon gets sent down to Virginia because he's kind of a rub, uh, uh, carousing at night, getting into trouble. So his father thinks, okay, I'll send him here. He's got some family here, and this will be a good place for him to grow up. So he sends him to Virginia. The governor, Sir William, does a lot to really help Bacon out. He gets him a seat on the council. He gives him a big land grant. And everything's going good. But the problem is in Virginia, they're having kind of a tough year. They're having a lot of economic problems. What's Virginia known for throughout history? Tobacco. Tobacco. And the tobacco prices, as far as trading, had dramatically dropped in England, the prices. And that's because it started being grown everywhere. It wasn't just Virginia anymore. So this starts to put their economy into the tank, which starts to create a lot of problems in Virginia. And also they have some hurricanes that year and some naval wars with the Dutch. So with all these difficulties going on with their economy, a lot of the people are looking for someone to blame for everything that's going wrong. And the group that they decide to blame are the, as mentioned, dog people. So a character named Thomas Matthew gets into a scuffle with the dog people. He allegedly does not pay some debts for some things that he purchased. And so the dog people promptly come back across the Potomac River and take some of his hogs away in lieu of payment. Uh, Matthew and his buddies pursue them into Maryland and kill a few of the dog people. And they also attack a Susquehannock town. The Susquehannock have nothing to do with any of this, but these vigilantes out there did not distinguish on who was a Native American that had done anything. And not only do they have nothing to do with it, but they're not even in the same people group. They don't even speak the same language, do no, they? No, the dog people are an Algonquin, and as we've mentioned many times, the Susquehannock are Iroquoian. Have nothing to do with anything. So a dog war party retaliates, and they kill Matthew's son and two of his servants on a plantation. And the colonists send out another war party to track down the dog people. The dog people don't really pay any attention to them. They kind of slink away. And so they go and find a Susquehannock village that, again, has nothing to do with anything. And they attack that. Now the Susquehannock get pretty mad. And now they're retaliating against the English. Yes. So for the next year, you're going to start seeing Susquehannock raids into Virginia plantations regularly. And this is going to cause a big issue because there is kind of two different people groups in Virginia at the time. There's kind of the, the rich aristocrats who live in their safe coastal fortified houses. And then there's all of the kind of peons that live out in the wild. And they're the ones that are really getting kind of screwed over by this because the Indians are coming in, killing them, stealing their livestock. Meanwhile, the aristocrats back in their houses... Uh, aren't really feeling the pain from it. The aristocrats had the system where they would get what they called indentured servants. They would pay for passage for them to come over from Europe, and they would settle on their land and work for them for seven years, typically, to pay off their passage and their food and room and board, and they would be given a small parcel of land at the end of seven years. This is primarily how Virginia was supplying its workforce at the time. Slavery was not a huge issue because slaves were so expensive. And so you even had black people who were indentured servants at this time, and you had low-class whites. Now, as the time was ending for these people to get out of their seven-year contracts, they were looking to expand west, but there was no more land because it was controlled by these native tribes. And so at the same time, you had these blacks and whites looking to start their own farms, 
but there was no room. And so they were clamoring and using this as an excuse to possibly attack these Indians. And so that it opens up the frontier for them to get more access. And so they're using the Native Americans, particularly the dog, the Susquehannock, and other peoples as scapegoats. Now, at the same time going on, there was a Susquehannock village, and some of these colonists decide to attack, invade, get rid of these bad Indians. And so they lay siege to the Susquehannock town. They try to get a parley going with the leaders there. It's funny that you actually you use the term bad Indians because the House of Burgesses actually said they, they gave permission to kill or fight off the bad Indians. It's just kind of interesting because who decides who the bad Indians are? Well, these guys decided that all of the Indians were bad yes. Indians, especially when they wanted their... But they used that as you know their, their legal permission to go out and basically do whatever they wanted. Mm -hmm. So they raid the Susquehannock town. And like I said, first time they try and do a parlay, the chiefs refuse. Second time they try to do a parlay, the chiefs agree. And they come out... Under a white flag of truce, five of these chiefs from assorted nations. And there's one person there, a guy named John Washington. Now, why is that name important, Andrew? Um, I don't know. Maybe because Washington is like synonymous with America. So you don't suppose this is any way related to George Washington, do well, you think? Well, this, this is... This is a long, this is seven, or 1670s, right? So this is 100 years before the so Revolutionary if this, War. So if there was any relation to George Washington, this would have to be like his great-grandfather or something. Well, that's because it was. This was George Washington's grandfather. This is George Washington's great-grandfather. Okay. George Washington, a symbol of pride and joy among all Americans. So his, his great-grandfather's probably a pretty cool dude, right? Yeah, well, let's, let's see what happens here. Okay. So they come out under this white flag... And um, the five chiefs are all killed with no negotiations taking place at all under a flag of truce. I imagine that this caused quite a stir. And so the Susquehannocks in the village hold out for about six weeks. And then one night they sneak through the camp while the army is sleeping. They massacre about 10 people. Well, massacre, more like defend themselves against 10 people. And they sneak away in the night. Meanwhile, the governor in Virginia is not happy. He demands a full investigation, and they severely reprimand Washington and the other guy that led this expedition. Well, they do to a point. But when I mean reprimand, they mean they give him a tongue lashing yeah, and nothing that, else. that's all that happens. They, they yell at him and say, you shouldn't have done that, and then just kind of sweep it under the rug and pretend that it never happened after that. This is... um. Kind of all we hear again from Washington. He goes back to his estate after this, and he lives about another year before passing. But in the meantime, the Susquehannock give him a name. And that name is Town Destroyer. And even though the Virginians kind of swept this under the rug and forgot about it, the Indians didn't. Even a hundred years later, the Indians did not forget about it. And we're going to see when George Washington is involved in the French and Indian War, this name is going to come back up. This name's going to come back up, and they're going to give that name to George Washington in honor of his great-grandfather. So tune in 180 years down the line. It's going to be a fun story. So that being said, the Virginians are getting really upset at the governor because they think that you know they're killing all the bad Indians, and the governor is is not endorsing this kind of action. They think that he's just inactive and sitting on his hands. Um, 
meanwhile, the colonists here are the ones that are causing this problem by stirring up trouble Again, with the Susquehannocks that had nothing to do initially with this, but now they're involved in a full-scale war with them. And Berkeley is starting to no- Governor Berkeley is starting to notice, notice that his cousin-in-law, Bacon, is kind of the one riling everybody up against him. And Bacon is showing up basically at his house with pitchforks and torches, and he's telling Governor Berkeley that he needs to commission him as general of the militia and he needs to be given permission to go out and kill all the Indians. And Berkeley says, no, this is not right. And I'm the governor and I'm in charge. And Bacon says, well, maybe we need a new governor. So Berkeley ends up being caught on what to do. He's especially at this moment because he doesn't sure he could probably scrounge up, you know, enough men to displace this huge mob. But at the time he doesn't. It's going to take him time. So he's got uh, up to 300 people out here. So he kind of says what he needs to say to get Bacon and his men to go away. And then uh, as soon as they do, the governor starts gathering up as many men as he can. And riding home to England. Because the governor won't give him the orders, he he takes his group of 200 men and they go out looking for the Susquehannock to find them and destroy them. He wants to exterminate them like a Dalek. Are you doing Doctor Who references on this podcast, Andrew? It's a very popular show. <laughs> okay, I'm not even... I was about to explain what Daleks were so that the people that don't watch Doctor Who would know, but Andrew, you're wasting time bringing things into that. If you want to know what Daleks are, Google them. Anyway, yes, he wants to go out and he wants to exterminate the Susquehannock. issue is he can't find them because, as we see, Native Americans tend to not want to meet medieval European style. They want to meet on their own terms. So as soon as they see 200 people coming through with guns and torches, they run away. So he's got all his men there. Is might as well attack an ally Indian nation, right? Yeah, we've come all this way. So that's exactly what they do. They they start heading to the friendly Okanachi Indians and attack them and steal all their beaver pelts from their village that they were saving up to trade for the coming year. And meanwhile, they turn around and come home from their great victory. But Bacon keeps pushing it. He's got his eyes set on actually leading an entire rebellion against the Virginia government. Right, Caleb? Right. And as he's, as he's pushing these Indians back and gathering new land, all of a sudden a lot of the other rich people and all the other people are thinking, hey, we can make this work for us. We can get more land out of this deal if we just support Bacon. So Bacon... From being this guy's cousin and being this guy that was kind of fostered and grown up in Virginia, supervised by the governor, he is taking over the entire colony. And at the same time, he's getting these rich people, but he's also getting the poor white and black indentured servants to rise up with him together. And that's what's interesting about this rebellion is you see poor blacks and poor whites uniting together. So the governor ends up telling Bacon, hey, come in here, submit to the House of Burgesses, and I will give you a tongue lashing, and then I will pardon you, and we can, you know, put this behind us. And uh, so he comes in, he shows up, but before the governor has a chance to do anything, suddenly Bacon is elected to the House of Burgesses. Ruh-roh. Because he has enough support from the other Burgesses and the support of all the people. So all of a sudden, the governor wants to make a fool out of him, kind of, and he shows up in town, and all of a sudden, he's actually on the board. Basically. And they realize that he's popular. He's popular. He's on the House of Burgesses. And 
the governor just keeps losing more and more hand in this deal. So as the governor and the House of Burgesses are sitting around trying to figure out what to do about all of the disagreements with the Indians due to things Bacon has most likely caused, all of a sudden Bacon gets up out of the house and walks out, and nobody thinks anything of it. And then all of a sudden, they look outside, and he's got an entire army surrounding the house. So the governor comes out, and he, he tells Bacon, you got to stand down. What do you think you're doing here? And Bacon says, I'm going to have you shot unless you make me the general and you give me permission to go out and kill all the Indians. And do you know what the governor said? And this, this kind of goes to show I think he's a pretty brave guy. He says, go ahead and shoot. I have a quote here from him. Here, shoot me before God. And then he pointed to his chest and said, fair mark, shoot. So what does Bacon do? Well, Bacon all of a sudden, you know, he knows the governor basically called his bluff. So it's, it's, it's recorded that it was like really tense. Like you could hear a pin drop for a couple minutes. Well, yeah, I, I can imagine. <laughs> and, and I just picture the, the House of Burgess is all there like uh, kind of sidestepping, hoping they don't get caught in the crossfire for, from anything. But Berkeley realizes that he's got to let Bacon go. And he just says, he says, go ahead, do what you're going to do. That is when Bacon's rebellion officially started. So what did Bacon decide to do with his mob now? Well, he went out and he started attacking nearby Indian settlements. The governor and other people were forced to flee across the Chesapeake. And Nathaniel Bacon ended up being the non-official governor of Jamestown from July through September 1676. So Bacon issues a declaration on July 30th, 1676. And he wrote in it that Berkeley was corrupt. He starts saying that he's he's exposing him for playing favorites in trade and things like that to protect Indians for his own interest. You know, tearing his, dragging the governor's name through the mud while he can. Berkeley has showed up and is ready to take Jamestown back. And Bacon has gathered some of his supporters and family members and positioned them on the walls. But Bacon kind of realizes all of a sudden that this isn't going to last and that he's defeated. So what does he do? He slinks away quietly and leaves everything intact. Wouldn't it be nice if the villains in the stories would just do that? But no, he has to burn Jamestown to the ground on his way out. And that's exactly what he does. He burns Jamestown on September 19th, 1676. If I can't have Virginia, no one can. Now, one nice thing about him burning it was... He didn't burn like the, their little town hall, which was nice, so all the records were kept. Because otherwise, we probably wouldn't have as good a record of what actually happened and things like that. So, But yeah, he burned almost all of Jamestown and fled into the woods with his army. But all of a sudden, he's still got support. He just lost Jamestown, but everybody is gathering up around him, and it's starting to look like... This rebellion is just going to go on and on and on. This is turning into a civil war, which may turn into a whole revolution, mm -hmm. totally overthrowing the government structure. But then all of a sudden, uh, Bacon starts to see some blood in his poop. <laughs> ruh <-roh. laughs> And then a little more the next day. And then the next day, he's he, dead. He's dead. They believe he died from dysentery. Yeah. Like, if you've ever played Oregon Trail, you have died of dysentery. This is one of those things. And so all of a sudden, it's like... The wind gets taken out of the sails. 
of this rebellion. But there are still pockets of resistance, but for all intents and purposes, this is where it pretty much fizzles out. They do spend the next year going around and rounding up these rowdy pockets of people that are still causing trouble. But this is the end of Bacon's Rebellion when uh, Bacon is cooked. And when Bacon died, when Bacon was cooked, good one, Andrew. When he died, they had a little uh, quote, a little like poem, they would say, a little jingle. And it was, Bacon is dead. I'm sorry at my heart that lice and flux should take the hangman's part. <laughs> so they, they had this little thing they'd say that the dysentery killed him before the hangman could. Mm. And so people did get hanged after this, quite a few actually. And things did not turn out so well for the governor either. After all this mess happens, England says, we need a new governor. They recall him. And they recall him. And I think he dies within the year, I read. He gets back to London, he's dead in a few months. He's also old at this age. I think he's in his 70s. So just like that, we've lost Washington, we've lost Bacon, we've lost the Virginia governor, and Virginia needs to pick back up the pieces. Now what the House of Burgesses and the government end up doing is they realize that they've got a real problem with these Africans and these indentured servants. And so what they do to split them up and to appease them is they give more rights to the indentured servants, thereby splitting them away from the Africans. And this is where they start importing more slaves. Yeah, because you got to remember, say three-quarters of the population is indentured servants. you got to worry about all those people. But if half of them are white and half of them are black and you give rights to the white half, all of a sudden they're happy. Now and they're going to abandon the, the Africans. Yes, all of a sudden they're not fighting on side with the African slaves. All of a sudden they're content with their lot, and you can then oppress the black slaves. Because nothing's better than giving somebody a little bit more rights if they think that they're still higher up than the bottom people in the totem pole. Mm -hmm. And so now this sows the seed for all all of the racial strife that we're going to see in America, arguably up till modern day, because of this singular event, which is pretty fast. I mean, it's going to take on new forms as we go through when slavery really kicks in and then leading into the Civil War and then leading into the modern civil rights movement. But it's all traced back to this event mm -hmm. and the consequences after it. So no longer do they have to worry about releasing their indentured servants after seven years now they can own slaves for life and any offspring that the slave produces. And they don't have to worry about white people speaking out against it because it's not their problem anymore. Mm -hmm. that, that, like Andrew said, is going to have huge impact on col colonial America for the next 200 years even. But let's get back to, you know, how does this tie in with Iroquois history and legends? Yeah, because after all this war and upheaval is happening, the Susquehannocks are... They're being battered from the Iroquois from the north at this time. they still got to watch their back. And then they've got these random raids that they don't know where they're coming from. And so the Susquehannock end up migrating towards New Jersey and Delaware to try and start taking refuge with the Delaware Indians that are there. And some of them have gone up to actually join the Iroquois because they think that it's safer there. And then some of them are still around in their villages. So it's, it's really divided the Susquehannock. And then at the same time, of course, they're dealing with epidemics and disease as well. So the Iroquois start using their leverage as a regional power, and they start talking to the New York governor, Andros, and he starts negotiating with them, and they say, we would really like these Susquehannock. They are battered and torn in their refugees. They're very similar to us. We want them to move up with us. 
But the Delaware don't want to give them up because they're re-strengthening their nation. They would like to absorb them themselves. And so there's kind of this showdown now between the Delaware and New York and the Iroquois fighting over who gets to divvy up the Susquehannock. The governor talks it out, and they decide that it would probably be best if most of the Susquehannock move up to New York. In addition to that, now the Iroquois claim Pennsylvania and Western Maryland and Virginia Piedmont region because they've got the Susquehannock now there with them. And they say, well, since we've absorbed all these Susquehannock people, this land is there, so this land is ours. And this is going to come into a lot of negotiations once we start talking about the walking purchase and William Penn and all these other tribes once the Iroquois start negotiating to sell this land to Europeans. That's where it comes in as important. I think it's really amazing. We may have mentioned it before, but how brutal warfare could be at the time. But if you joined willingly, they basically just divvied you up into the ranks and you became part of the tribe. I mean, we really don't see any records of anybody of the Susquehannock that just joined, having to go through the gauntlet or having any... No, they, they seriously wanted them. They wanted them to be part of their nation. So I just wonder why more people didn't just say, we'll, we'll, we'll join you. And a lot of people did. We're going to see, as the years go by, a lot of these little nations, uh, especially the Tutlu and other small uh, nations and tribes, are going to end up going north and wanting to join the Iroquois and being absorbed by them just because the epidemics of disease and the war with the Europeans is too much for them. And they just want a home and want a way to stay alive. And so, like we said, you're trying to think to yourselves, what does a, war, a rebellion in Virginia have to do with the Iroquois? But these dominoes all of a sudden lead to, now the Iroquois are over western New York. They've got Ohio. They're into Michigan. They've got southern Ontario and Canada. They've got into Pennsylvania. They've got into northern Virginia. And so you look at a map now, and you see the British squished on one side of the coast, and you've got the French up in Canada, and everything in the middle is Iroquois homeland or Iroquois-influenced territory. So we're going to see throughout the next hundred years, joining the Iroquois doesn't only help you because you have a place to live and you're part of this confederacy, but you're going to see that you get different respect if you're part of the five nations because they are now the most powerful, you could powerful nation you could say in the whole, all of north america most likely yes uh, but we'll say at least northeast they're the most powerful group of nations and they're going to be treated differently than some other nations that aren't members of the five because a small little tribe village of 500 people can be pushed around by the europeans but you can't push around the five nations yeah so you're going to see smaller nations want to join the iroquois just for the sake that uh nobody will want to mess with them because people you're going to see are going to worry, hey, can we attack these Indians? Are they friends with the, with the Five Nations? And we'll see this with the Tuscarora War coming up in a few decades. But people, don't, people are worried about what the implications will be if they fight with certain people based on their friendship with the Five Nations. Mm-hmm. And I want to point out that when we talk about them absorbing them, there was like the Susquehannock, they wanted them to come and be absorbed into their nations there. But they also had what they called props. We alluded to before how the Iroquois set up their longhouse, Caleb, and you got the Mohawk on one door and the Seneca on the other and the Onondaga in the middle fire. 
So these other nations, they start to view them as like protectorates, not officially part of the five nations, but they're props. And so think of them like wooden props that help expand out like a porch of a longhouse when, when you've got a, a back porch or a side porch or things that are helping support the walls. And so they view these people as under their protection as their children or as their brothers, not fully part of the decision-making in the five nations, but like you said, if you mess with them, you're messing with the Iroquois. And so a lot of people are putting themselves under the protection of the five nations. We'll see more and more. So it looks like the Iroquois are back on top, right? For now. (laughs) Uh, But bad times are coming again because the French are going to be back again and towns are going to get burned again. Uh, we're going to see this ebb and flow continue, at, probably at least for the next hundred years, continuing to ebb and flow. They're going to get defeated, and they're going to rise stronger than ever before. But I'm really looking forward to uh, the start of the 1700s, because things start to get really interesting then. Mm-hmm. We got a lot more documentation. We got a lot more interesting stories and interesting characters yeah and especially of the five nations we get a lot more names of characters Mm -hmm. that are directly influencing the events and so that's nice that we can start talking about it from their perspective so i'll just give you a rundown on what kind of andrew and my plan is for our next couple episodes we're going to step away from the narrative next week uh, and we're going to talk about technology right yeah Um, Because we really want, especially with a lot of these sieges coming up, we want to explain how cities were set up, how they built the houses, and how they used different technology in their everyday life, and how that technology has changed from the time that they arrived with Europeans up until the time that we have in the narrative. Yep. So we're going to focus on that, try to go over some of their technology, how they built their longhouses, some really interesting stuff that Andrew and I studied a couple years ago when we started this podcast, but... We just haven't had time to do an episode, so we're going to do an episode on that. And then we're going to do a, uh, a uh, Legends episode, and then we'll hop back to the narrative. So please remember to check out our Facebook. We've checked. We've got a lot of listeners, and if all of you like our Facebook page, it would probably triple or quadruple within a day <laughs> if you all hit liked for all of you that are listening. And feel feel free to message us. I know some of the stuff... To us, it makes sense because we've read it and looked at pictures of what we're talking about and stuff, but maybe you don't quite get what we're saying on a subject. Feel free to message us, and we will get back to you and try to explain it a little better. Also, the Wild Sweet Potato Clan continues to grow. We've added new members in the last few weeks. How many members does the clan have now? I'm not even sure. We've probably got about 26 or so people. 26 Wild Sweet Potatoes. Yep. So our clan is growing. So if you want to join the clan, all you have to do is go on iTunes and leave us a review, and we'll put you on the rolls of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan on our website, which is longhousepodcast.com. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye, everybody.